1: Welcome to episode 103 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose DeAnon, she, her pronouns, a community engagement manager here at MCP, and I'm joined by one of the top 10 influencers in educational technology and e-learning worldwide. And I've also been a follower for many years now, Matt Miller. Welcome, Matt.
2: Hey, good to talk to you today.
1: Yeah, and um, it's so exciting to be in this space with you. I am low-key fangirling, and thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. And so before we get started, how are you feeling today?
2: I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, back to school time. Everybody's kind of busy, but, you know, in a good kind of busy, it's like that optimistic, hopeful time of the year. And so I'm kind of feeling all of that like everybody else, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you've been kind of ramping up all the resources as well. I've been getting lots of emails from you about all the cool things to do for back to school activities, beginning of the year activities to really get to know students. And so um, listeners, if you're not aware, Matt Miller is actually from Ditch.Textbook or wrote the book Ditch.Textbook. And so I'm sure if you have been an an ed tech guru, you've heard of Matt Miller. So um, again, thank you. So tell us more about who you are and your journey to where you are now.
2: Yeah. So um, I I was not your traditional go to college type person who, um, well, you're not your traditional go to college as an education major and know that I'm going to be a teacher. That wasn't me. I was a journalism major in college actually. Um, thought I was going to be a newspaper reporter or a newspaper editor when I got out of college. I graduated from college. I got a job in um, newspapers and three months into it, I hated it. And so I didn't last there very long, um, but my wife was a teacher. And the time that I spent in her classroom made me go, you know, this just feels right. There's just something about this. So after a long career of three months in professional journalism, I left to become a teacher. And, you know, within just a matter of months, I was in my own classroom uh, teaching on a temporary, kind of like an emergency teaching permit. And so I was kind of like thrown to the fire immediately, didn't have a a student teaching experience or anything. So I really didn't know what in the world I was doing. I know even, you know, for a lot of people, you go through your education degree classes and everything, and you have student teaching and you go into class and you still don't feel like you know what you're doing. But I definitely didn't feel like I would, I knew what I was doing. But after teaching for a few years, I was teaching high school Spanish. And I started to find out, I started to find that my students in my high school Spanish classes, you know, we studied Spanish a lot, but they couldn't speak Spanish. And I was like, you know, babies learn how to acquire a language and they don't do verb conjugation drills. There's, There's got to be a better way. And so... I quit using my textbooks as much, and I just started coming up with activities that I thought would engage them in the content and would help them to become better, more fluent Spanish speakers. And it was working. And so here comes the journalism background in me. You know, the, the journalism bug is starting to itch. And so I started a blog to share some of the things that I was doing, and I named it ditch that textbook because that's what I did. I started ditching my textbooks, you know, like little by little by little. And so today, you know, long story short, that's what I do full time is, um, you know, I provide resources to teachers, uh, lots of free resources. I've written some books. I get to do professional development with teachers all over the United States and sometimes beyond. And um, my big goal really is just to help teachers to save time and do great teaching that students are going to love that's going to help them to make an impact. So that's me in a nutshell, I guess.
1: And that's so interesting because, um, funny enough, I was also a journalism major when I first got into college, and that was what I wanted. Get out. Really? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I quickly realized, nope, that's not for me. So I actually switched to education while I was in school. So, um, and I never wanted, I wanted to do early elementary, actually, but ended up doing middle school instead. Like, it's funny how the universe works.
2: Yeah, 100%.
1: Yeah. And you said three months into it, you were like, never mind. (laughs)
2: Right, right. Yeah. Like I had had some internships and stuff. And so I had a little bit of experience in it. But yeah, once I got into it, I was doing I was doing county government and I was like, oh, county politics. No, thank you. I'm out.
1: Yeah, that does not sound appealing at all. And then you just you did this emergency teaching permit. How was that for you? I mean, you came in not knowing anything. There was no student teaching experience. I mean, you had your wife who had who was a teacher. um, And I'm sure that you came to her for support and guidance. Uh, But how was that experience? Because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who also didn't go the quote unquote traditional way of becoming a teacher.
2: Yeah, it was tough. Like, I didn't feel like I had some of the skills and some of the tools in my tool, but that really probably could have helped me. But I'm also going to say that going that non-traditional route and just jumping right into teaching, I almost felt a little bit like the black sheep, so to speak, you know, like the the one who wasn't um, you know, like the normal part of the flock, I was just sort of different, so to speak. And, um, because I didn't have that, that same educational upbringing, but I think it gave me a really good perspective too. You know, like I didn't feel beholden to doing things the way that everybody else did. I didn't have, you know, any of those like education professor voices in my ear going, you know, Oh, this is the way that it's been. This is the way that you should do it. I just tried to do what worked. So it did give me sort of a you know, sort of a, a different perspective that sort of encouraged me, gave me the courage to try things that people usually didn't do. So that, that was a positive from that experience, I'd say.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's definitely an, an interesting perspective that I didn't even consider, right? Because I did go into school. I got my master's in education as well. And it was a lot of, you know, hey, here's research, do this and do that. And then I would try it in the classroom and it didn't work. As well as what research had said, right?
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, right.
1: I said, that's just such an interesting, interesting perspective. Um, And so, and then, so you taught high school Spanish, and you, I mean, what you observed is real, right? I mean, my Spanish classes, it was also a lot of textbook work. I could say maybe one phrase in Spanish, which is so embarrassing. And I didn't really learn how to speak Spanish fluently, which should have been the goal, right? And so, when you decided to ditch that textbook, which was really the appeal because I hated also using the textbooks as a teacher. And so when I found you, I just kind of clung on because I was like, this is such a great idea because it just opens up so many possibilities. Right. So how did, um, how did your admin react to you being like, you know what, I'm going to ditch that textbook for a little bit, or even just for now, or even just start kind of going outside of the norm. How was that response for you?
2: Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great question. And people will ask me that from time to time. Um, you know, part of it was, (laughs) I'll just be like fully transparent here. Um, for some part of that time, I had a little bit of an absentee principal who was kind of asleep at the wheel, so to speak. So, um, you know, the, it wasn't like anybody was watching over my shoulder every moment, but I did have, you know, there there were other principals. I had like seven different principals in 11 years of teaching. So <laughs> leadership changed an awful lot, but I did have some of them that were more attentive to it and they I think they were more interested in the results that I could get. So that was that was a nice litmus test to see whether something was working or not because I would have kids go out of my class and they would jabber with each other in Spanish in the hallways or in the lunch line or at home. And I would have parents saying, Hey, my kid's talking in Spanish and I have no idea what they're saying. And I'm like, isn't that the point? (laughs) (laughs) And so thankfully it was a focus on results instead of methods, you know, and I would even argue that just about every teacher ditches their textbook in some degree Every single year, maybe even every single day, because we don't do everything out of the textbook. We, you know, come up with a cool conversation prompt that we could have with the students and we do that. That's not directly out of the textbook. Um, We come up with another, you know, sort of hands-on approach that's not directly out of the textbook. And that way, you're still sort of ditching your textbook little by little. So really, all I was doing was I was coming up with stuff that was still in line with the standards and the curriculum. But it was just sort of my different twist on it. So, you know, really, it was just changing up the resource that I used to teach instead of actually changing the curriculum and content. I think if you keep that as your emphasis, keep that as your focus, like the textbook hopefully shouldn't be the big emphasis of, you know, are you using it or not?
1: And that's and you're right. Teachers do tend to think outside of the box, right? I mean, I'm an English teacher. And so we used a lot of supplemental texts that weren't in the textbooks that we were using. And so uh, just hearing that is really, really good for me just to kind of remind like, okay, people like teachers are really just being creative. And so when we think about um, textbooks, right, because I know some teachers are like, oh, but we have to follow um, every little thing. And it's, it's kind of nice to hear that, like, okay, you can still do that, right, and add on other activities that doesn't just, like, connect and align with the textbook. And so kind of focusing on the standards and the skills. And I think also sometimes our textbooks are outdated, right?
2: Yeah, 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 100%.
1: Yeah. And so when we think about making teaching more relevant and teaching and learning actually more relevant, more um, just exciting and engaging for students is also really important. Because I think that was my biggest, um, what's the word? My biggest thing about textbooks was like, some of the things that I was teaching was like so outdated. Like it didn't make any sense for me to bring it up.
2: (laughs) Right. No, no, you're totally, you're totally right. Like if we have, outdated textbook. And thankfully, you know, through textbook adoption cycles and the way that textbook uh, companies do things, they do try to keep them as updated as possible, but there's no way to keep it up. I mean, really with some things I could imagine in English in some capacities, I mean, like grammar doesn't change and, you know, historic literature doesn't change, but, you know, some of the stuff that's out there that people are really, you know, watching and looking at and stuff like, um, you know, some of that stuff becomes updated, like, for instance, when, um, you know, when Amanda Gorman read poetry at the inauguration, like that probably wasn't in the textbook. But if you wanted to use that, you know, that's something where you pull that in. And I mean, that's kind of an example of, you know, ditching that textbook, so to speak, because, yeah, you, you realize that maybe it's not as authentic and relevant, just like you said. And if we can insert something in that's a little bit more than maybe it is.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'm definitely in a more privileged um, environment as far as schools are concerned. So I haven't had to teach from a textbook in many years. And there was a school that I went to in Montana, and they've had the same science textbook since they opened. And that's been decades. And so if you think about it, right, like science, we've gotten a lot of research where we need to update the stuff that we used to know uh, and just continue growing. And so this is just really interesting. So then Matt, I, I, I'm interested um, in knowing how you kind of started doing ed tech based off of like ditch that textbook. And so now you just created so many resources um, that teachers and educators really all over can use using and leveraging technology, right? So how did you make Make that shift, or rather, not shift. But how did you start getting into ed tech?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think ever since the beginning, I was interested in technology. One of the first things I remember when I got my very first teaching job, one of the first things that I scoped out was: Do we have a computer lab? Do I have any computers in my classroom? Of course, the answer there was no, other than the one teacher computer, but. I did find out that we had a computer lab and so I was like, Ooh, how can we use that? I mean, I've always, I've always sort of been sort of a techie guy anyway. Um, you know, I learned how to code basic on my, um, you know, in the basic programming language. Um, when I was a kid and did that in media fair, I was the coolest kid, you know, computer programming at the media (laughs) fair, (laughs) but, um, I mean, I did that when I was in college. I had a Palm Pilot that I used to take notes on. And one of my journalism professors scolded me because he's like, that technology is going to fail one of these days. But it never did. Um, so, I, I mean, it's just kind of been part of me. But I don't think that you necessarily have to be the quote unquote techie person to use technology in your classroom and to get into ed tech, you know, Um because I think sometimes people label somebody else as techie, I hear that word a lot, techie, and I think sometimes people use it as a pejorative against me, like oh, you're well well, you're techie, of course you do that, but really all that it all all that you need to do is just find something that works for you, and it doesn't have to be high tech, it can be basic tech, you know, like typing in a document or assigning something through your learning management system or recording a simple video and, or, I mean, just like any of that stuff, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to be a techie person. So the re- the only reason I bring that up is, you know, your question was, how did you get into ed tech? It was an easy transition for me, but I don't think that you have to like have that in your bones, so to speak, to be able to make good use of it in class.
1: And that's a good point as well. I know for me, I've always been interested. And it's funny that you mentioned your first school, right? Uh, For me, that was, it wasn't a priority, but I noticed that we had a computer lab and we had Mac desktops for our classroom. And so I really tried to utilize technology in the classroom, but I did it in the most awful way. I basically created a lesson plan based on the technology that I had instead of the other way around, right? Instead of enhancing my teaching and learning with technology, I was like, oh, I have iPads. What can I do with iPads that'll make this teaching cool? And it's like, no, girl, that's not how you do at all. And I'm kind of laughing at your Palm Pilot comment because you're definitely dating yourself, Matt. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, willing to, I'm wearing, willing to own that. That's okay.
1: Um, and uh, an interesting thing too, when you talk about coding, did you have a MySpace back in the day?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally had my space. Yes.
1: Do you remember having to like do the coding to get the background and the music and all of that stuff?
2: I remember that people did it, but I don't think I actually did it myself. But yeah, I, I know what you're talking about.
1: That is basically my coding skills is just the MySpace page because I wanted it to look a certain way. And so
2: mm-hmm,
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I was just chuckling when you were like, oh, like I did coding or, um, you know, all of that good stuff. And I was like, yo, the only thing I know is what I did for my MySpace page. Um,
2: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
1: it's interesting because MySpace is still around, uh, surprisingly. Um But okay, so let's go ahead and switch. Um, So here at Modern Classroom, we provide training for teachers all over the world who want guidance and support in implementing blended learning, self-paced structures and mastery-based learning, right? And so one of the skills that we focus on is having an organized digital classroom, really an organized learning management system, LMS. And so what are your top five tips when organizing an LMS, regardless of whether it's Schoology or Canvas or Google Classroom or Seesaw or whatever else is out there.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on that. Like, you know, it seems like, um, whenever I hear people talk about their learning management system, the term hot mess comes up a decent amount, just like, (laughs) you know, people kind of feeling like they're, they're just not super organized, but really I think, um, You know, as long as you're sort of intentional about creating that space or once you've created it, if you're intentional on just trying to improve it a little bit, I think you can you can make some some big jumps. So um, there's a variety of things. You're looking for my top five tips, and there's really a variety of things that I've talked about related to organizing and making the most of your learning management system in my book, Do More with Google Classroom. And so I, I was kind of scouring through there for some of my favorite tips. And probably the biggest one, like number one, and I, I spent a little bit of time in the book talking about this, is to find your prime real estate. Because of course, you know, the, the three biggest rules of real estate are, you know, if you ask anybody who does anything with real estate, it's location, location, location. So um your your learning management system is like that too, in that There is prime real estate. There are certain places where your students' eyes are going to be more than others. And so if you can identify where some of those places are and then try to make those work for you, that can be huge. Like, I'll give you a good example of that. Um, I do lots of stuff with Google Classroom. And so in Google Classroom, the top of the classwork page is prime real estate because students click on that classwork page button a lot. And whenever the page loads, it starts you right at the top of the screen. And so students' eyes are going to be attracted there a lot just because it's the first place that, that it loads. So what teachers will do to make the most of that prime real estate is they'll put a little section up there of stuff that is most... It's like your, your high-touch documents and assignments and stuff. Like, for instance, I know some teachers will do a, um, a today section or a right now section, and they'll put it right up at the top. And those are the things that students are most likely to want to use right away. Now, that's just for Google Classroom. With any learning management system, no matter what you use to create that digital classroom, as you say, you're going to have your own prime real estate. So if you can figure out where that is and maximize it, that's big. So that's one. Another one, number two, probably is just to understand this. This kind of goes with the, the previous is just to understand the organizational hierarchy of your learning management system. That's a whole bunch of 25 cent words just to say, figure out how it works. You know, as far as how is it, how is it organized? Like with um, Google Classroom, you know, you have the the kind of like home screen that has a stream and then, you know, you have your Classwork page and you know, you've got a couple of other pages in there. But if you use something like Canvas, you have a really pretty home screen that you can customize an awful lot that you can't with Google Classroom. And then, you know, aside from that, you can go down and you can kind of organize it through pages and everything. When you understand how it all is organized... It's almost like you you can't really decide what you're going to do with it until you understand how it works. It makes me think of uh, actually it makes me think of Marie Kondo a little bit. There's I actually uh, did a whole presentation where I took some of Marie Kondo's tidying tips and connected them to Google Classroom because there's so much crossover there, believe it or not. One of one of Marie Kondo's foundational tips in tidying is that she says you have to under you have to visualize the you know kind of like your ideal life and how you want to live it before you can create a system that supports it. And there's a lot of truth to that with the learning management system, too. You have to understand what you want to do before you can create what you want. So that's number two. Uh, The next three are kind of like little smaller hacks, so to speak, that I really like. Like, for instance, number three, you want to make the most of your title of your assignment. I was talking about prime real estate in number one, where... You figure out where your students' eyes are the most. And the title of an assignment is prime real estate when it comes to digital assignments. And so that title, you know, that's going to show up in the list of all of your assignments. And also, if you click on it, it's going to be in the summary of the assignment. I mean, like, those titles are all over the place. So make them work for you. My friend Alice Keeler, who has done an awful lot of stuff with uh, Google Classroom, she suggested that you number your assignments. And so, you know, she always suggests doing like three-digit numbers. Like your very first one would be 001. Because if you're going to refer to a specific assignment, it's so much easier to say, um, I need you to work on assignment 13 instead of I need you to work on that one assignment. You remember that assignment we were doing on Tuesday when we were doing this and this? Like, it's just easier to refer to a number. And then in addition to that, in the title... You can also add emojis too and pretty much any learning management system. And of course, you can use emojis to like decorate it and make it fun, but you can also use them almost as like labels and organizational tools. Think of them kind of like a color coding system or a visual coding system. So if there's a certain type of assignment or a certain topic or something, you just give an emoji to it and use it consistently and students can use it as a visual cue. So that's number three. Number four is to use what I like to call satellite locations. Um, One of the reasons that I, you know, that that I started thinking about this this way is because when I would log into Google Classroom, I remember like one of the first times I logged into Google Classroom and I looked around at it and all the different stuff in it. And my first reaction was that I was very underwhelmed. I was like, this is it? This is all that is made up of Google Classroom. But the truth is, is that Google Classroom isn't made to be the end-all be-all with everything in it. It's meant to be kind of like a place where you can get to other things. And so for me, I, I started thinking, if I want to make the most of Google Classroom, I'm going to need other things to kind of like amplify what it already does. And so that's where the idea of satellite locations came for me. You know, like you've got a company and they've got their headquarters in New York. But if you get somebody's business card, it says like New York, Los Angeles, Paris, Rome, Tokyo. Those are all satellite locations, right? Those are like secondary offices. And so if you set up a satellite location or a secondary office in a Google site, you know, maybe in Google Classroom, you can't embed videos, but in a Google site, you can. Maybe you can't embed slideshows, but in a Google Slide uh, site you can, or you can't create sub pages the same way. Those are the things that you can do in some of those other satellite locations. So that's just to say that you don't have to put everything in your learning management system if you have the ability to link out. So that's number four. And then number five, I'll make this one quick because <laughs> I've been talking for a while now. Uh, number five is the frequently asked questions page. And I took this from websites of um, successful businesses. You know, a lot of times they have these frequently asked questions page because they get asked a lot of questions and they don't want their customer service people to have to answer them over and over and over again. And as teachers, we get asked a lot of questions and sometimes they are very repetitive in the same thing. So maybe what we do is we set up a place in our learning management system somewhere where we answer those most common questions. Now, that's not to say that we want to dismiss our students whenever they ask us questions like, oh, I don't have time for this. Go look at that. But sometimes if they know where to look, they'll go find the answers to those questions self-sufficiently, not dependent upon the teacher, and they'll, be, they'll just be able to get on with their work. And it's also a nice resource for parents who are trying to help with their students too. So that's like, Thinking about what are the most common questions that students ask you and put it on a page in your um, learning management system or put it in a document that you can link to out of Google Classroom or whatever. So anyway, top five tips. Those are probably the ones.
1: These are so great, Matt. I'm literally taking notes and be like, dang, I should have done that in my classroom. It's really nice to know that um alice keeler is saying the same thing i am when it comes to titling the assignments because she's right it's so much easier to be like hey go to unit or go to 0.1 instead of we're going to talk about developing theme go to that assignment right like that's so long um and so just being more mindful of that i'm a huge fan of marie kondo so i just kind of squealed a little when you mentioned her because i do think that (laughs) We really do need to visualize what our ideal life or what we want really to be able to live that way um, and make it sustainable. And so another thing that I really appreciate you saying was also being able to link out. So using um, the satellite location that you were talking about, if you have a Google Classroom, because I was the same as you. I was underwhelmed with Google Classroom, but then I also had a very much a love-hate relationship with Google Classroom because it was so simple But it was also so restricting, I couldn't do as much. And so and then I switched over to Canvas. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, Canvas is so much more exciting, because there's so many features and so many ways to organize the LMS, right. But you're absolutely right about linking it out. Like if you can create a Google site, create a Google site, and then you'll have all the options to embed whatever you want in those Google sites. Um And then the last one, Matt, the frequently asked question. I didn't even know why I didn't think of this when I was teaching because I hated repeating myself. Mm-hmm. And this would have just worked really well for my middle schoolers as well as like all stakeholders so they can kind of know how to navigate the LMS, navigate the lessons, navigate the classroom really if I would have had a frequently asked questions page, right? And I really like what you said too. Um, I know in education, and I know I did this when I was in the classroom, when a student asked me a question, I just gave them the answer right away, right? Instead of helping them be more of a self-directed learner and like helping them, basically know how to search for what they're looking for. And I think it's really funny, you know, there's a misconception that because our students, our younger learners know about technology, they actually don't know how to use it in a way that's you know most effective for them. Like they could watch YouTube videos, they could watch TikTok videos, but if you're like search this They'd be like, what do you mean, search that? Um, and I'm I'm kind of going through that with my sister who's 19, and she'll just be like, Well, I don't know how to do this. And I said, Well, Google it. And she's like, But I don't know what to Google. And I'm just like, You're kidding me, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it just makes It it makes a lot of sense. Right. Because in education, we're just like, hey, Misty, where's this? And I'll be like, oh, it's right there. Or let me show you where it is. Instead of, you know, providing them that space and that practice time to really look for what they need, as opposed to just going to somebody and asking for help.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Ooh, good, good stuff. Good stuff. And so, okay, in your opinion, because you know, organization is a huge thing in education, I am still trying to figure out how to organize my life. Um, and so what are some what are top two tools that teachers and students can use to stay organized or really just anyone because I definitely need tips? <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, So what I would love to be able to do for you right now is to say, okay, I have these two game-changing tools that you've never heard of. They're kind of like under the radar, but they're the best thing. And if you start using them, you're going to stay completely organized. However, wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) Yes, I wish someone would say that to me, but unfortunately, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to do that. So, I'm going to have potentially the least sexy answer to this question that someone can come up with. So, your question was two tools to stay organized for teachers and students. Here's what I got for you. You ready for this? Yes, your email tool and your calendar tool. So, Here's let me let me give a a little bit of a reason why I believe that. and Actually, this is part of my one of my sort of like foundational beliefs about ed tech is that you don't have to have the flashiest, newest, coolest stuff to sometimes do your best work and be your best self. Um, For example, sometimes you'll have a brand new tech tool come on the market and everybody's like, oh, this is so cool, but it's brand new. And it's got bugs in it. Or you may find out after a year or two or so, they lose their funding or something weird happens or they get acquired by a different company. And all of a sudden it's completely different. And so what you've kind of like based your focus on for the last year or two now gets totally discarded because that company has gone in a different direction. But if you stick with some of those basics... Google Docs has been around forever. Kahoot has been around in ed tech years, at least I feel like has been around forever. Quizzes has been around forever. And what those, what those get is they have this enormous user base that is constantly using the platform. They get to monitor how people are using the platform and they get all of that feedback. And over time they've gotten to make that tool better and better and better. So see, I'm not as big of a fan of jumping right on the flashiest tool right out the gate as I am trying to make the most use of some of those foundational tools. So that's why my, like I said, my non sexy answer of make the most of your email, you know, like get a good system of labels, learn how to like snooze things for later. Um, sometimes I, I know this is sort of like a low tech thing for me to do, but I email myself sometimes, you know, like if there's a, a, a picture or a, a link or something that I want to make sure that I hang on to, I just know, you know, my, one of my standard operating philosophies is if it gets in my inbox, it gets done. And so you know, working out of that email can be really big. And then with the calendar too, you know, I mean, if you sort of like stick to a habit of making sure that everything goes in the calendar, if you learn how to use the notes feature of it, where you put the details and you put extra links in and stuff. And those two things work together. Well, like for me, I use Gmail and Google Calendar and in my Gmail, there's a little tab off to the side for Google Calendar. So, you know, they, they, synchronize together really nicely and they're they're meant to do that. And again, it goes back to that idea of Google's been around forever. Gmail and Google Calendar have been around for a long, long time and they know how to make them work together. So like I said, not super sexy, not flashy, not brand new. Stick with your email and your calendar and learn how to make the most of those.
1: No, I love this response because Matt, I'm the one who sees a flashy new thing and I want to try it right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so I fall into that category of just like, oh, here's this new flashy thing. And I want to go ahead and implement that and like, just utilize it as soon as possible. Right. But you're absolutely correct. Again, Just it's a, this is such a nice reminder to stick with the basics. I have yet to really master organizing my email and my calendar. I'm still kind of struggling with that. And I was writing you know he said make use of the labels I just started that which is brand new for me and I have really loved it and snoozing also because I'm like oh I can just touch base with this person uh, next week and I'll just snooze it so it'll remind me next week that I need to do that and when you were saying that you email yourself I actually have a draft like I just draft an email of all the links of everything I want but then that gets overwhelming for me because I'm like why did why do I now have 86 draft messages
2: (laughs) yeah Uh uh-huh yep um
1: and so just trying to stay on top of things as far as just getting organized, you're right, just sticking with the basics and really just focusing on what is working um right now, right, not necessarily having to jump from one tool to another because there's there's always gonna be a new tool, right
2: yeah, yeah, one hundred percent they're 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 always coming out, but if you stick with the basics, that's good. and in fact, I just thought of another one. Can I give you one more little hack to make your email and your calendar better?
1: Uh yes, please.
2: <laughs> okay. So um and I I believe this with um th- this really fits for me with Google Drive as well and so you know if you're using Office 365 what is it? Um I think it's OneDrive. The that, that is the Microsoft OneDrive, version. yep. Yeah, yeah. So um I'm a big fan of searching for things. I'm not as much of a folder person in Google Drive. And even when I um, sort things into labels in my Gmail, my go-to is always still the search. And if you think about it, like Google, for instance, Google makes its living on being the best search engine, right? So you would think that they would be really good at helping you search and find what you're looking for in your email. So I I actually did a, a test on this. I would just like pick out a random file that I wanted to uh, find in my Google drive or a message that I wanted to find in my uh, Gmail. And I would try to dig down through my folders and open that file and I would time myself. But then I would also search for it just by putting in a couple of keywords and then open that file. And I found that on average, it took me 15 seconds to find it out of a folder. And it took me six seconds to search for it. So right there, that's what hooked me into search first, but folders and labels second. That's, that's my, that's my emphasis at least.
1: Uh, You've just literally just blown my mind because I'm the one, you know, creating the labels and the folders. And now I'm like reflecting back on my practice and it's like, no girl, like you literally just search things and you find it. You don't even touch the labels or the folders. Thank you for giving me that permission (laughs) that I didn't think I needed.
2: (laughs) You've got the permission. I give you permission. You are free. (laughs) Free of
1: the folders and the labels. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay. So I guess I don't even know how to ask this next question, right? Because it does deal with, you know, creating a more equitable and accessible learning environment for students. So what are some tips that you have or tools or anything really um, where teachers can really create that brave space for students to be who they are, show up as they are and also access all the learning that they need in their LMS or digital classroom or even just our physical classroom.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um and you know, obviously we we know that there there are all of these factors that make you know, everybody sort of starts in a different place. You know, not everybody's at the same starting line and going to the same finish line. And if we can sort of level that for, for kids and make sure that they all have the, the same access, um, you know, that's huge and maybe one of the most important things that, that we can do. So um, there's a couple of tools that I think really do sort of level the playing field and remove barriers that I really, really like. And probably the biggest one that I always point to is Microsoft's Immersive Reader. Um, immersive Reader is fantastic because it'll take a page of text, whatever you find in, you know, like um, a web page or in a document or wherever you find it. You can use Immersive Reader as a screen reader, and so even students that um, you know struggle to read. You know, they, can, they can hear the text read to them. And so now reading the text no longer has to be a barrier. If it's students whose uh, first language is something other than English, Immersive Reader has like dozens and dozens and dozens of different languages that you can translate into and out of. Um, they've got a picture dictionary. So if there's a word there, it'll look it up right on the screen and will also show you a picture of it. Um, it also has a couple of other things, uh, where like you can change the screen font to something that's better for, you know, students who struggle with, um, you know, dyslexia or any of those other, um, reading situations like that. Um, it has this highlight mode where sometimes if you're looking at a document, all of the text above you and all of the text below you is a distraction. So the highlight mode will just highlight one line of text and it'll kind of like um, gray out the rest of the text up above it and below it. So as you scroll, you're only looking at one line of text. Like, I could go on and on about immersive reader, and of course, if you have Microsoft tools in your classroom, immersive reader is built into so many of them. It's built into you know all of Office 365, and it's built into Outlook. It's built into, I mean, just uh, OneNote. It's built into all of them. If you don't have Microsoft tools, there is a Chrome extension. And I think all you have to do is search for immersive reader. It's not an official Microsoft Chrome extension, but what someone has done is they've taken the Microsoft immersive reader API. You know, the API is the, you know, kind of like the the language that websites use to talk to each other. And so they've taken the API to create a Chrome extension so that you can run immersive reader in web pages. So even if you're in Google, if you have students set that up, um, that's kind of a game changer. Um, I got to, to talk to Mike Tolfson from uh, Microsoft who works on the OneNote team and is real big into their accessibility. And one of the things he said about Immersive Reader that I loved is he said that it's, um, it's a non-stigmatizing way for students to get support. Because if you think about it, back in my day when I was in middle school and high school, if you needed support with reading, you had to have a special needs aid. Sit down in a chair right next to your desk, and then it was clear and obvious to everybody that you were getting that support. Nowadays, all students have to do is just either use Immersive Reader on their screen, and nobody else is really paying attention, or plug some um, earbuds into their Chromebook or laptop to be able to hear that text being read to them. It all happens on the sly, so to speak, and you know they can get what they need and get their work done. So. Immersive reader is is huge, and so that's probably num- my number one. My number two is actually another t- another tool that's owned by Microsoft, but it's one you can use just about anywhere, and that's Flip, which used to be called FlipGrid until just sum- this summer they had a rebrand and now it's called Flip. But um, you know, Flip is this tool that you can use uh, where you, as the teacher, give your students a question or a prompt, and the students respond by recording a short video about it. And then they can go watch each other's videos or you can set it so only the teacher um, gets to see the videos. But Flip, A, has Immersive Reader built into it. So there's already that accessibility in it. But then, you know, B, if all a student has to do is just hit record and they're able to talk their way through things, now the keyboard is no longer a barrier. And sometimes you've got students who would prefer to express themselves by talking instead of by typing, like that kind of frees them up as well. And then it's even got other features, like it's got microphone only mode. Like, you know, so many of us learned during uh, remote learning on video conferences that kids don't want to be on camera all the time for a variety of different reasons. They can go microphone only mode, turn their camera off and just talk. But then there's also the ability to display text on the screen and record videos that way with text and images and stuff. So it really does give students a variety of different ways to show up in those spaces with their physical voice, with their typing voice, you know, with their face. Um you know, just like all, all of those different ways and um, you know that's one of those tools that you can use, whether you're a Google school or a Microsoft school, if you use Google Classroom or Canvas or Schoology or w- whatever. Um, so those those are two of the ones that I really really like for that equitable and accessible learning environment.
1: You know Flip has changed a lot since they started, and I'm such a huge fan of everything that they're putting out. Something that I loved using Flip with is names, pronouncing people and students' names, really, just so that there's a recording, I can continue practicing pronouncing my students' name correctly and appropriately, and not having to ask them to tell me every single time. So I always tell my teachers that I work with, hey, in the beginning, have your students really introduce themselves, say their names, and then base or ask them a question of like, where'd your name come from? Like, tell me more about your name or whatever. But it's such a great tool to really establish those relationships with students and build community as well. And another thing too, immersive reader, I don't think that I use this, which is really sad because it sounds really, really awesome. Um, something to keep in mind too with teachers and students is that even if the student is not considered a struggling reader, they may still want to listen to it being read to them, you know, and providing this tool for everyone and not just those kids who need it, right, is really an impact. It's impactful. Um, I know that I recorded books that we read in class. And so it was kind of like my own audiobook. And I just gave it to everyone. It wasn't just like, oh, I need to just give it to these specific students. But I gave it to everyone because I understand as an adult and as an avid reader, there are times where I would rather listen to it than actually like read it. And it doesn't take away from the experience at all. And so that's something that I'm, I'm encouraging teachers to shift away from as well is that all of these tools can be useful for every single student out there.
2: Mm-hmm. That's such a really good point. And I wanted to bring up two, two quick points on that to, to further agree with you on that. That, you know, number one, letting everybody use these tools is also not cheating. It's not saying that they're lazy or that they want to use these things because they have, you know, ulterior motives or whatever. No, these are the tools that we use to go about doing our work, and everybody should have access to all of those tools. That's one. And then number two, I saw, the, this, um, I saw the results of this study that showed that, um, you know, especially, I can't remember exactly what the age group is, but, um, you know, I'd say probably in, you know, teens and 20s and maybe early 30s and everything, um, lots of people who watch TV, for instance, are starting to put captions on, even if they can hear the audio. So that's just to further your point that we have these accessibility tools, but we can't Put students in a box. We can't pigeonhole students into here's who you are and here's who you aren't. Here's how the school has labeled you. And so now we're going to, you know, we're going to revoke your access to these certain tools because you're not labeled a certain way. Like, why don't we just make it available to everybody and let's use the tools that work the best for us?
1: Yeah, providing them that option and the autonomy to choose for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. So listeners, we're going to take a quick break. um, And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about beginning of the school year activities. And so we'll be right back. If you're implementing the Modern Classrooms approach this fall and you're considering becoming a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator, we want to help. We're hosting a workshop to share more about that credential and to help you understand the application process on September 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Becoming a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator means that you'll build community with other distinguished educators. You can earn graduate credit, attend specialized training, get premium lifetime ed tech subscriptions, and you get a really cool backpack. Uh, This also paves the way for you to become one of our paid mentors. So we hope to see you on the 15th. Find the RSVP link in the show notes. All right, and we're back with Matt, who is... Just blowing my mind, honestly, and giving me <laughs> permissions that I didn't even think I needed, and reminding me things that I just completely forgot about, right? Um, And so we just got done with creating a a space that's brave for students to make mistakes and to really embrace how they learn as individuals. And so we're gonna kind of shift gears because I think this is a really important thing too, is that in the beginning of the school year, right? It's here, we can't stop it, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) I really loved one of your most recent resources about superhuman classroom memory, right? So we're gonna link that in our show notes for our listeners, but it's definitely a great way to remember things our students tell us because our students come in with so many, you know, so many stories, so many experiences, so many questions. And sometimes when we have over 80 or 125 students, we really forget what they say sometimes. And that's okay, right? So in modern classroom, we have an SEL, like a social emotional learning do now where students create their daily goals, where they are in the unit, and of course, share whatever their heart desires. And so this was hands down one of my favorite Google Sheets, if that's even a thing, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, because it was something that my students uh, filled out every single day. And this is how I got to know all the tea in sixth grade was that they would just tell me who was, do- you know, who was dating, who, who was having problems with who. And so it was, it made my life a lot more interesting and it was so cool just kind of reading through it as well. And just remembering, oh, like my student said this, and my student has a soccer game coming up or my student said this or whatever else. Right. And so, what are some tips that you have for teachers on how to leverage technology to create deeper relationships with students? Again, because we do want to create that equitable and accessible learning space as well as for students to be brave. But before we can even do that, we really want to establish relationship with students so we know who our students are, right? And so how do you use, how do you leverage technology? And are there any cool things you've seen or done in your own practice?
2: Yeah. Um, just to, to piggyback on what you said about the power of relationships and, you know, students have got to know that they are in a safe space, that they can trust you, but then also that your classroom is a safe space too, before they really, you know, open up, um, you know, brain science talks about the, the effect that the amygdala has on the rest of the brain. You know, the amygdala is what people call the lizard brain. Sometimes it's kind of like the thing that's always looking around for threats And if it perceives a threat, then it's like, it's what makes us super aware. It's kind of like, you know, way back in the days, you know, what is it like centuries? And so, you know, way back when there were like saber tooth tigers hunting people and, you know, like the amygdala was what kept them alive, you know? So um, it was, it was just being aware to, to all of that, but. The sad part is, is that today our amygdala is still very much alive and well, even though we don't have to look out for saber-toothed tigers. Um, But the saber-toothed tigers in our mind these days are the mean girls and the mean boys in our class that will say things or the teacher who is going to, you know, disrespect us or is going to make us feel like a fool in front of our best, you know, our best friends. There's a variety of those threats. But we learn from the, uh, uh, what we've learned about the amygdala is that if it is active, it diminishes all of our abilities to do everything else. So, you know, if you want to be able to get to the peak of your ability to think and reason and be creative, you know, if you want to be working with all of your cognitive capacities, you got to calm that amygdala down. And the way that you do that is by creating those safe spaces and by knowing that the relationship is there and that you know that you can trust your teacher and you know that if you say something in class, it's not going to have a negative impact on you. And so relationship building, especially at the beginning of the year, is the firm foundation that you build everything else on. It's like, you know, you're building a new house, you have to pour that good, solid, concrete foundation that's nice and square like it like it's supposed to be. And so how do we do that? You mentioned something about this SEL do now. And I've just got to echo the power of that. And I especially saw it during remote teaching. You know, I saw lots and lots and lots of teachers that were going, hey, I can't see my kids' faces. I can't hear their voices. I can't see their eye contact when they walk in the classroom. And I use that a lot to gauge how they're doing. And if I need to go talk to them and if everybody's like that, then, you know, maybe I'll even adjust my, my lesson, but during remote teaching, they didn't have that physical feedback. So they're like, how in the world am I going to get it? And that's where they started doing some of these SEL do nows. I love some of the things that you put into yours about daily goals and, you know, like progress in their classwork and, you know sharing, whatever, an alternate version of that, that I really like too, is the super, super quick and simple version of it, which is what's your name? How are you doing today? Which could be a variety, you know, you could do it from like a a checklist or a, you know, multiple choice, or you could leave it open. And then is, if there's anything you need to tell me good or bad, you know, tell me. And, you know, just by those couple of questions, some kids would get done with it in 10 seconds and they'd be done. Or some of them would take a couple minutes and would write something sort of heartfelt. And then what the teacher did was, you know, they would go through those responses, probably a lot like you do, Tony Rose, with with um, this particular SEL do now. And what I started hearing from teachers was they're going, why in the world did I not do this before? And see, they were also in the past, they were using some of those physical tells The eye contact, the tone of voice, the body language and stuff, they were using that to try to gauge what was going on in a kid's life. And some of them started going, you know what? I had no idea sometimes. Some kids are really good at masking that stuff unless you just explicitly ask. So they were almost like counting on all of this stuff they could see with their eyes and hear with their ears that wasn't even telling the whole story. So even coming back after remote learning, so many of the teachers are like, I'm sticking with those those uh, SEL check-ins. You know, like, how are you doing? What's going on? Is there anything that I need to know? Because sometimes, you know, some kids are really good at hiding it. So um, that's definitely something that I've I've seen teachers keep around, um, especially since uh, remote teaching now that we're coming back face-to-face. Um, a couple of other real quick ones, since I sort of yammered on about that one for a long time, is um, one of them is, This simple idea that so many of us know about, but sometimes either don't find the time to do or just forget. And that's those positive phone calls home. You know, um, when I was a kid, if I heard the words, I just talked to your teacher, that was like immediate panic. But if we set the culture of, I'm going to call home for good things that starts to set up that that builds a relationship with the student but it also starts to build a relationship with the parents or the guardians or you know the families whoever's at home and so whenever you start to create that connection that's huge and then there's a, a the the last thing i would say for building those relationships has to do with the work that students do i really like this little quick activity called peer praise and peer praise is basically just this if students have created something for class Let's say they've, um, you know, written a story or written an essay, made some slides, made a video, whatever. What they do is they display that on their screen or they even print out a copy of it. And then students get to go around and read each other's stuff. And then either on a little piece of paper next to the laptop or on a digital note on the screen, they just type something that they liked about it, something that they noticed about it, something that they were impressed by or whatever. And then all of a sudden, when the student gets back to their own screen, they have all of this praise from their peers, which is huge. Um, I saw the power of this with my own daughter, who's a freshman in high school. She's um, on the volleyball team. And there's all of these kids that are older than her that she's trying to impress. She's trying to do her best. And they did this activity where they taped a piece of paper to everybody's back. And then they walked around and they wrote positive notes about them on everybody's pieces of paper and so when my daughter got done with it she got to look at this paper and it's like here's all of this validation from these kids who's you know whose validation she inherently craves and they're saying things about her that she's hoping that they would and it's like it's now this like treasured possession that she's got because you know the coach thought giving peer praise was an important thing to do. So um, I think those are a couple of things where if you want to build those teacher-student relationships, or even if you want to build up student-student relationships, I think those are a couple of good practices
1: you know, I really love that paper activity that you mentioned with your daughter, because I did something similar with that as well. And it also makes you realize as a person who's writing that like, oh, I haven't interacted with with this peer or this teacher or this person as much. And so I want to be intentional and really get to know this person to see what brings them joy to see how they smile and how they work and all of that good stuff. And so it's a really great realization as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that, you know, you were talking about with the SEL. It was we do have students who are really great at masking. I was that student. I was really great at masking um, all of my emotions. And one thing that I really liked and appreciated about these SEL do nows is that it it encourages our students to practice how to articulate how they're feeling and how they show up in the classroom. Because sometimes, you know, our students aren't taught to react in in an appropriate way, right? And so if they're angry, sometimes our students don't know how to say that they're angry but something made them angry or someone made them angry and so the do nows for me really was great because my students had to sit and think about okay how are they really how are they really doing right now at this moment how are they showing up in my english classes and are they really able to concentrate and focus on learning, right? And so my Google Sheets, my favorite Google Sheets, I had it color-coded. And so the how are you feeling today, if they chose like a sad one or a negative option, it automatically color-coded and I automatically went to that student as soon as I got that um, response, right? And so it was just really powerful. And I would just always approach the student and say like, hey, I'm here. If you need me, I'm here. If you need a moment, take your moment. But I just know that like you're not feeling well right now. But I'm here. And it's not like bad during them to tell me what's happening, but it's just I see you and I I I value you and I support whatever you think is best for you right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. And that made me think you also have the students who might not advocate for themselves very well if they need something or if something's going on and they don't stand up and speak out and say something about it. Like that's another channel of communication for them to be able to do that to say like, you know, I can't see very well from where I'm sitting. Can you move me? Or this person is doing X, Y, and Z, which is really, you know, doing this to me, Um, you know, advocating for themselves. It, It just gives them another channel of communication to be able to do what they what they need to do and when they learn that they can do it and they have the power to make the change that they need like that's that's super powerful.
1: Yeah, and they really love it when they know you read it. Yes. <laughs> It, it's so my my students would always have just like wide eyes and be like, oh, my gosh, you read that, Miss And I'm like, yes, I, I I read that. Like, that's my favorite thing to read every mm-hmm, single yeah. day. It's just read all you of them. are doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, And so, yeah, and you're right. Like some of them will take 10 seconds. Some of them will take two to three to five minutes just to fill out however they're feeling that day. Right. And I really love this push for positive phone calls home because you're right. When we when I was growing up as well, that phone call from a teacher was always a negative one. And so I really, when I was teaching, I made sure that I was giving positive phone calls and positive texts and even like going out there and meeting parents and caregivers and stakeholders and just like seeing how they're, you know, they're doing, how they're feeling or just like praising the heck out of their student because like, who doesn't like to be praised,
2: <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And so, okay, Matt, clearly you and I can talk forever and ever and ever. Um, Yes. There are so many other questions, but I think, you know, just for your time to be respectful of your time and our listeners as well, how can our listeners connect with you?
2: Well, um... There's a couple of different places. Uh, if you go to just ditch that we've got tons of free teacher resources out there, you know, lesson ideas, templates you can make a copy of and use tomorrow. Um, you know, I've been creating that website on and off for about 10 years now. So there's a lot of stuff in it um, that you can go take a look at. I'm on Twitter a lot and you can find me at J Matt Miller. That's the letter J Matt with two T's Miller. I started doing some stuff on TikTok too. So um, that's at Ditch That Textbook. Oh, snap. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. The guy who was on the Palm Pilot is now doing TikTok. There's something wrong with this, I think, (laughs) but I'm doing it. And then the last thing I would say is, if your listeners are looking for lesson ideas that they, they can use in class tomorrow, um, I've got a, a handful of these free ebooks with a bunch of ideas that they can use. Um, and the easiest way to get to that is to go to um, this, this, this URL. You ready for this? It's getmatsstuff.com. Just get Matt, matts m a t t s stuff You can get these free eBooks, and it also signs you up for my email newsletter, where I'm always uh, where I'm always sharing lots of uh, practical teaching ideas that you can use right away. So I'd say any of that stuff is probably that's a good place to to stay in contact with me.
1: So thank you for that. I didn't even know the getmatstuff.com one existed. So I will definitely be um, looking into that. And I, listeners, y'all, when I tell y'all that I have been using Matt stuff forever, I just love the fact that you can just copy and paste and make it really your own. And so definitely check out the resources. Um, and so again, thank you, Matt. You, This has been such a great conversation. Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 103. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So be sure to check there or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class proj that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.